25 different titles for Antichrist in Revelation. 25? 25. He's called the man of sin, the lawless one. You can just go right through and and, um, all of these titles are meant to give us a little glimpse into his character, his personality. He is the most wicked, most awful person. I mean, take Hitler and Stalin and uh, Mao Zedong and all those people, wrap them all up to one and then multiply them and you won't even come close to the awful uh, character of this man. And he's going to gain control of this world and everyone will be under his domination because if they aren't, they won't be able to function. So David, our audience curiosity, my curiosity is, where does this man come from? What can you tell us about us, about him, based on biblical revelation? All right. I believe he comes out of the European coalition. The Bible says that early in his, in his uh, career, he takes power over three nations, and then with those three nations, he gets power over the European coalition, and then ultimately he comes to power over all the world. And uh, when we talk about the false prophet in a few moments, you'll learn that his his uh, strategy for gaining control of the world is to provide a license for everybody to basically be alive. Uh, we call it the mark of the beast, but basically this license was set up to control the economy of the world and, and the, way, the way you qualified to be able to eat and sell and buy and all of that was to worship the beast, who is the Antichrist, the beast from the sea. And so there, that's where we get the mark of the beast. And, and uh, he, he gain, gains control over all the world. Here's the key thing that he does. He makes a covenant with Israel at the beginning of his career. And he promises to protect them from all of their Arabic enemies. And, 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 and so Israel goes back home and they, they kind of disarm. They use all of their inventiveness and try to rebuild their economy. And the Bible says while they're at peace, he comes in and he breaks the covenant. Ah, yes. Revelation. Ah, yes. The end of the world. (laughs) I tell y'all, as a former Seventh-day Adventist, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many times I've read Revelation, Daniel, Isaiah, um, all these kind of apocalyptic literature books uh, that point to the end of the world. Funny thing is, is that uh, no one's been able to predict the end of the world, Um, but it continues to be a fascination among many religious groups, uh, not just Judeo-Christians. And it's always interesting to read the tea leaves, if you will, uh, in, in whichever era we're living in to see what religious leaders are talking about in regards to the end of the world. In fact, Recently, there was an ad taken out in a Nashville paper, I believe, in uh, or was it in Tennessee, that talked about how the end of the world was imminent, it was coming on July 18th, and it was going to be an Islam nuclear terrorist bomb that uh, exploded and uh, started a, a, a religious war. Y'all, I think it's time to get some new definitions and understandings of what Revelation is actually talking about. My guest this week gets into all that and gives you a fresh new take on what Revelation is actually saying. Let's check it out. You know the deal. This is Profane Faith. Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you 
control. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, 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 y'all. How you doing out there? What's going on? It's your boy, Dan White Hodge. Here we are in July. The heat of it, the heat of it all in the summer of 2020. My goodness. Hope you're safe. Hope you're well. Hope you're enjoying your time. If you're listening to this in real time, um, yeah, a lot going on in the year 2020. Um, if you're not listening to this in real time, maybe you're listening to this in 2021 and uh, we have a vaccine and a cure for COVID-19. Maybe you're listening to this five years from now and you're looking back at me like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was even tripping off of COVID. Oh man. If that's you, um, God bless you. Can you invent a time machine and come back now and uh, heal us all? And then you too could be the uh, the next ruler of the world, right? The Antichrist. You could be, uh, you know, labeled as that. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to get into my guest this week, uh, but into the time, into the world stuff, man. Um, yeah, this is. Yeah, I've been wanting to do this episode for a while, uh, just with all the other stuff going on and all the other stuff uh, happening in our wonderful world. <laughs> um, uh, I just wasn't able to and get to this. Uh, I recorded this a while back uh, and uh, Wes, my good friend, uh, and we've been friends for years. And um, I wanted, I, you know, he's got a new book out, which I'll get into here in a second. And, uh, but you know, there's just been so much going on and, uh, you know, and the reality of it is, is that I'm trying to actually wind down the season, season four, um, in, and, uh, take a little bit of a podcast break. You, the, you, those of you who've listened for a while already know that, um, you know, every, usually in the summer we take some time off and, uh, just regroup and try to figure out, uh, you know, what's next, what's, uh, what are some themes we can pursue, um, what are some things we can look at and interview? Um, and you know, the other thing is, you know, just some ideas for the show. I mean, I know this year I try to do a different, couple of different formats in regards to just trying to keep them <laughs> under a relatively amount of short time, but you know, that doesn't always happen. Uh, conversations just go kind of where they go. And, um, as you know, the, you know, it's very easy to get, um, you know, uh, it, well, it's not even very easy, but I like to keep up with the times that are happening. And so with everything happening with George Floyd and then COVID and uh, just the continual train wreck that is uh, happening in Washington, I really wanted to have, um, you know, those conversations uh, as it pertains to faith and religion uh, and whatnot. And that's, you know, that's the great thing about putting a an episode out every week, right, is that I'm able to do something like that. Um, and, and not have to be constrained, right, by, oh, man, I already got these things in place. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the, 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 the mentality behind all of that. But um, definitely a lot of talk about end times and whatnot. And uh, speaking of end times, my uh, social media account, Twitter, is still, I am still in Twitter jail, y'all. I am still in Twitter jail. 
going on over two weeks now, entering our, our third week. And it looks like this thing is going to go on for a month. In fact, I got a response. Uh, the um, mofos at Twitter <clears throat> responded back to me. They uh, sent an email. They said, hello, thank you for your patience as we reviewed your appeal request for account at Dan White Hodge regarding the following. And, and again, those, uh, you know, those who are looking at, at the tweet, it was the tweet that I talked with uh, Dr. Shanika Walker-Barnes, who I had on a few weeks ago, it was in response to Lecrae, and all the tweets said, and I'm literally reading this, tell that Negro about my work in hip-hop culture and race too, period, shit, period, hip-hop's hostile gospel, a post-so-theological exploration, and I linked it. That is what got cited for violating the rules against hateful conduct. They said, our support team has determined that a violation did take place, and therefore we will not overturn our decision. You will not be able to access Twitter through your account due to violations of the Twitter rules, specifically our rules around violating our rules against hateful conduct. That was it, that's the reasoning. Violating our rules around hateful conduct. Y'all, I got all kind of choice words to say around this, and I am literally on my last nerve in regards to Twitter. Let me just say what I'm going to say, and, and I'm going to try to get past this. I really am. Um, Twitter was really my, 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 my one public account. Everything else I have kind of pretty much locked up, uh, whether it be Facebook or uh, Instagram and whatnot. LinkedIn is just kind of whatever. Um, but Twitter is really where like I try to put in my work and links and whatnot and try to build the audience. And I spent the last better half of the decade trying to do that. And for some stupid mess like this, y'all, I am, I have a very overdeveloped sense of, of fairness and justice. Uh, as some of you know, who know me, um, I, you know, it's kind of what's driven me, you know, most of my life, you know, a lot of it stemming from childhood and growing up in a racist uh, Southern town in Texas. Um, and, you know, just experiencing what I've experienced in my life. And so, you know, when it comes to crap like this, I'm just like, yo, this is whack, especially with what I said, because in my estimation, right, there is no freaking violation against hateful conduct. You know, the amount of crap that's out there on Twitter right now, the amount of crap that's being talked to, to, to people or spoken to, to people of color, women of color, trans people, LGBTQ folks, you know, the amount of porn that's out there, that's, that's, that's child pornography related, that's mutilation that's on Twitter. Yeah. But this gets cited. Oh man, I appealed again, but you know, it looks like I, I'm, I'm talking to a bot. It does. That's not even a person. It just says, hello, comma. And then thanks Twitter. Um, I know that I'm not the first. I know there's been other people, a lot of people of color who've done this and it's it's exacerbating. And, um, you know, it gets me to think a little bit because, you know, the reality of it is, is that, well, uh, these, again, like I said this last week, these domains are not ours. These are not our platforms. These are not our environments. When I mean our, I mean people of color, black folk. So these rules that they talk about that we quote unquote violate are really just in my estimation, really just made up in parts of social con construct that they can say, look, we have a policy, right? You know, don't, don't come after us. 
So I am continually uh, frustrated that uh, that you know crap like this happens to other folks. I've you know I've posted a few things on Facebook and some folks have responded and been like, "Hey man, me too." You know, me too. I, that's the same thing that happened to me on Facebook or it happened on Instagram, right? Um, you know, so we live in an interesting time because I get that this is the way most of us communicate, right? Most people, you know, when they ask, hey, who to follow? You know, it's like they're talking about some social media account. Um, and one of the things I'm trying to look at is how media in particular has created a sense of reality, um, a sense of religion, a sense of really, I don't want to say it's, it's really part of what um, Herbert Schiller talked about. Um, what's his name? Brother man who wrote, um, amusing ourselves to death. Um, you know, these, these are all folks who have been talking about this stuff long before, you know, any of this stuff happened. So I'm, I'm curious. I see myself again, as an educator, see how much time gets consumed on social media, right? How we communicate, how we talk, how we get our news for God's sake. Um, that is always concerning and i get it this is not this episode and we got i got my guests i got to get to them um but you know it it, it is exasperating and now the fact that we have to take um you know breaks from social media and that we have to take um uh that we have to take a, a time away from from social media uh speaks to just the level right i have yet to read a study that says social media brings about joy and is uh brings about a sense of relaxation uh in your life uh all the studies regard in regards to social media and being connected to a deal with addiction uh uh, uh deal with depression uh sadness uh feeling anxious um and whatnot now and i don't want to just put social media on blast and be like that's the smoking gun. I don't want to simplify it that way, right? Because, you know, you hear people like that all the time, right? Saying, oh, it's because these kids are listening to, you know, fill in the blank or doing fill in the blank that we have such a bad society and the end of the world is here. No, 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 no. It's a component and it's a, and it's a you know, a very strong component of where we're at right now, just as a human society. Um, because you think about it, right? Mark of the beast and that you can't function in society. I mean, think about this. You cannot function without a social security number, at least legally, at least in a manner that you can get a decent paycheck. All right. Keep that in mind. You can't drive a vehicle legally without a driver's license. Okay. Um, to exist in this world, to purchase, to have a home again, you have to have some form of identification connected to the mainframe somehow to be on the grid somewhere. Your fingerprint somewhere is in there. Now think about who was writing the Bible some, you know, thousands of years ago and then being privy to that. I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> there is a sense of the quote unquote mark of the beast. Now I'm not trying to make the correlation. I'm just trying to get us to think a little bit about what these things actually mean in, in, in regards to religion, in regards to just the way we get around society, right? These are the world of the internet and the media is a very believable space. It exists. It is around. It gives meaning. It provides nurturement where folks think they're getting nurtured. I mean, there's all these things right that fall into it. And religion is no 
is is no, is not necessarily a part of it. You can read my 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 good friend Rachel Wagner's work um, on media and religion, and looking at how these you know the transmediated life right that that gets into all of this and gets in and really begins to break down. Like you know, if you think about like televangelists all the way up to now, I mean we're in COVID nineteen. I mean how many of y'all who run churches are doing some kind of online engagement, right? What church worth their weight and gold doesn't have a Facebook, doesn't have an Instagram, doesn't have some sort of social media engagement? So then how does that construct of reality, how does that construct of reality of the spiritual world get formed online? This is just some questions, y'all. Just some things, just some things I'm thinking about as I'm in Twitter jail. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about opening up, um, maybe I should get a public figure account on Instagram. I don't know. I'm not really that into Instagram. That's it. I'll post my cats and some funny memes if you follow me on Instagram. Um, and I block a lot of crap, man. A lot of, you know, sales people are trying to get a hold of me. Hey, buy these watches, you know. Hey, 50% off uh, sunglasses, right? Uh, Oakley sunglasses. I'm like, I ain't wear no damn Oakley sunglasses. So, here we are. <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Uh, and it's frustrating, as you can tell. Sorry, I'm drinking coffee as I record this because, uh, you know, I have to calm myself <laughs> down. Ironically, that coffee does that, right? At any rate, um, yeah, that's 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 what's going on. But I'm excited about my guest this week, um, Dr. Wes Daniels. Uh, his new book is resisting empire the book of revelation as resistance and you're about to hear just kind of a different take on revelation altogether and i was like oh my gosh when i first read this i was like i gotta get brother west on the show finally and um you know just to talk about a different view and understanding of revelation because we've always heard the doom and the gloom and i remember taking kids to camp and you know it's like most kids were afraid to open up the book of revelation if they had any semblance of religion it was within that book the end of times the end of the world death you know the devil showing up uh and so this his understanding his research and his work uh provides just a different uh, understanding for that a different knowledge a different knowledge base which i think is very helpful um in this day and age because again i'm telling you this stuff is out there right now so just this last week, um, the Tennessean um, ran an article um, on, and it was a full page, full page. It was July 18th. It's on, it's on and about July 18th. It was um, the largest newspaper in the state. It published a full page ad from a far, far right client warning that Islam, quote, is going to detonate a nuclear device in Nashville, Tennessee. It's, accompanied by photos of Donald Trump and Pope Francis, okay? Um, and it's part of a USA Today publication. So this, you know, this went out. This was on Sunday, June 21st. And it, it, I'll, I'll try to post a link. Uh, I, I know a lot of this was taken down, but I'm reading from a picture of it. And I'm not gonna read the whole thing, um, It, you know, cause it's long. <laughs> uh, but this is just goes to speak, right? It, it goes into how uh, the word of God is telling them that uh, they said we are under conviction to not only tell you, but to provide evidence that on July 18th, 2020, Islam is going to detonate a nuclear device in Nashville, Tennessee. Our problem with trying to warn you um, of this event is that it requires information on a handful of subjects that you may or may not have any inclination to consider. 
Therefore, our intent in this letter is to identify the warning we feel under obligation to provide and then give you a brief exclamation of how this warning can be demonstrated to be valid. And so, you know, it goes on and on and on about how Islam, <laughs> I didn't know uh, the, the entity of a religion can could detonate a, a nuclear weapon, but it goes, you know, it just, that's the ignorance, right, of, of something like this. And to have the Pope and Trump on here... Um, I, you know, it gets me because these once upon a time, again, used to be in corners of society and people used to kind of like shirk them off like, eh, whatever, you know, that's just them. And they, they're just a little crazy. And, you know, I, I ain't going to really pay much attention to that. But now this stuff is front and center. If you listen to any of Trump's recent speeches, you know, he is invoking all kind of conspiracy theories. This is coming from the president of the United States, y'all. So it behooves us to, again, take notice um, <laughs> and debunk some of this crap wherever we can find it. Um, again, I'll try to post this these uh, these links in the show notes at whitehodgepodcast.com. You can read the whole article for yourself. Um, yeah, it, there's a lot there, man. And again, I grew up Seventh-day Adventist, so I get that these predictions have been coming um, for, you know, decades. Um, that the end of the world is coming, the end of the world is coming, the end of the world is coming, and this is it, you know, get ready. You know, of course, everybody thought in 2012 the end of the world was coming. Um, it's, uh, you know, and then, you know, there's been other predictions. I know when I was living in Los Angeles, uh, there was a group um, that was going around. They took out ads. They were driving around all over L.A. with big old speakers saying the end of the world is coming. I think it was like something in 2010 was going to happen. Again... It's one thing to laugh at it, but it's another thing when you see these things, you know, in office, legislating, creating policy. That's the kind of crap that I'm talking about that is dangerous. <laughs> that's that's what gets me because I don't think the end of the world is happening. I just be real. I just don't. I don't. Um, I think we got a few billion years before the sun envelops the earth and the earth actually deteriorates. Um, if we haven't figured out a way to, you know, to do stuff or if we're even still around anymore right? at that point. Um but in terms of like society and, and, and whatnot and how we look at things, I mean, yes, that could be. I mean, that could be. But the end of the world has happened in so many other places in the, outside of the United States. Think about Syrians, right? Think about folks who are living under the constant threat or have to leave their home that they've been there for generations because it's a warlord, right? That's the end of the world. You got to leave your entire family. I can't imagine, can't fathom leaving my house in the night with only the shirt on my back. And I'm having to go to some foreign country that is already going to be treating me hostile. But it's either that or face death. And not even a, a, a nice one. Like, I'll just shoot you and it'll be over quick. It's like, man, we're going to rape you, your family. We're going to take advantage of them. We're going to kill you and hang you up. And I'm like, man, that's into the world type crap. So then we got to start to look at some of these things in perspective, which is why, again, I wanted to get my brother, Wes, Dr. Wes Daniels on. Uh, he's an author, educator, uh, and theologian living with his family out in Greensboro, North Carolina. He has a blog, Gathering in Light. Uh, he has a PhD in intercultural studies and works on issues related to faith and practice, contextual theology models of change and resisting empire. I love that. He's uh, active in the Poor People's Campaign and work in higher education and Quaker congregations. I actually did some work with him uh, at AAR uh, on that as well. He's leading a renewal and change efforts uh, with the goal of mobilizing communities grounded in love and liberation. 
Um, his other book is Remixing Faith. It's it's uh, about old and new spiritual technologies for life and the faith of empire. But his new book, which one we're going to be talking about now, uh, is Resisting Empire, the Book of Revelation as Resistance. Um, this cat's got some great insight, and I'm excited to have him on Profane Faith and excited for y'all to listen to this conversation. So, Y'all take care, be safe, wear them masks. I know they suck, but wear them as much as you can. And um, yeah, if you think about a brother in Twitter jail, you know, send a, send send something up <laughs> for that. All right, y'all, enjoy this conversation. Peace. Well, Dr. Wes Daniels, welcome to Profane Faith. You have put together an amazing book here, Resisting Empire, the Book of Revelation. Uh, I, as you know, in my own Seventh-day Adventist background, I have most of the books that I've read on <laughs> Revelation are, 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 are very interesting, shall we say, and Third Angel's Message and Connected to Ezekiel. You have oh, yeah. taken a different perspective on this. But before we get to that, who is Dr. Wes Daniels, who is you? What is what's been going on from birth to now? <laughs> um, so thank you for having me on the show, Dan. Yes, um, I uh, I currently am at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I'm the director of the Friends Center here. So we do Quaker studies. We're also the office for multi faith collaboration. Um, and I got here by kind of a, a, you know, a long, a long path. I was born in Ohio, Canton, Ohio, and became a Quaker in college. Uh, before that I was Catholic and then, um, was a part of a non-denominational, uh, evangelical, you know, kind of charismatic community, hmm. um, where, you know, I mean, where there were, you know, it was a complex looking back on all of that. But one of the things that was really positive about it was that was where I learned to read and uh, appreciate the scripture and, you know, kind of have at least some orientation towards it. And then, um, uh, you know, I think that that's where the seed of, you know, of even this book, you know, began uh, trying to understand what the Bible is all about and what does it have to do with us today? Um, so anyways, I became a Quaker in college and really have been a lot of my work, as you know, has been around trying to understand how faith traditions evolve over time and are there ways in which those traditions either are more or less faithful to kind of the core you know, truth or the core charisma of that tradition. Um, and so I've been a kind of doing that thinking within within Quakerism. And um, I went to Fuller, which is where I got to know you. Yes, sir. And, uh, and really applied the concepts of, you know, cultural studies and missiology, contextual theology to Quakerism to, to try to think about like, okay, what does it, here's what the tradition says, quote unquote, it, but what does it look like to be, um, you know, Quakers in the 21st century? What does it look like to live out our faith in this context in American uh, culture and American empire? Um, and what are the kinds of ways we need to adapt 
And, you know, I use the language of remix drawing off of hip hop culture as a, you know, as a within within hip hop remix is a way to pay homage to the past Mm. while um, while creating something new. So so you have this way of understanding and mastering the tradition, but not being stuck there not having to just repeat this thing over and over again, you take it and you build from it. And so I really love the, the concept of remix in all of its forms and have applied that um, to Quakerism. And anyways, that sort of led me to pastoring up in the Northwest uh, mm. after Fuller got my PhD and uh, actually got my, worked on my PhD while I was working as a pastor in Washington state. And, um, and this is really where the, the book resisting empire comes about. And, you know, and we can go into all of that, but it, it largely came about as, um, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a remix, you know, maybe it is a, as a way of saying, how do we reread this text given what we know today? And how can we get back into the, the maybe the the tradition of revelation as it was in the you know in the first uh, the first generation of the church, and see what it has to teach us. So hmm. that's a I don't know if that's telling you who I am exactly. It's giving you a little bit of my my kind of story. I'm I'm a father. I've got three kids. Um, I've been married for almost twenty years. Uh, I like to ride, ride a motorcycle. Um, really, I didn't know that. Yeah, the motorcycle yeah, I, um, part. I've been, I don't know, since early maybe 2010 or 11. I started out with the scooter. Don't laugh. <laughs> uh, the, people my, the people in my congregation, uh, you know, you know, call Harley's hogs. They called my scooter a piglet. Um, yes. So, you know, but that was a way of kind of learning, you know, learning the ropes and also easing my life into the idea of okay. me being on a motorcycle. <laughs> uh, so I eventually upgraded and have a Triumph Bonneville now, which I love. Um, so that's kind of one, one of the things I like to do to just for my own mental health and well-being. Yes. Get out on the bike. Um, and, uh, another thing, I don't know if you know, I like to roast coffee, so I keep keep myself well caffeinated with freshly roasted beans in my house. So if you ever make your way down to Greensboro, North Carolina, I will uh, treat you to some fresh coffee. Oh my gosh. Yes. I have (laughs) since moving to Chicago, I've become quite the, the, the coffees now I'm not roasting them, but I've thought about it. I've been looking into it. So man, I didn't, I didn't. Had no ideas. Yes. Hey, man. Uh, <laughs> I apologize. I'm going to put us on pause for a second. I need to go grab these dogs. They are going nuts up there. And I apologize for that. But I know my <laughs> wife right. is up there doing some work. Give me two seconds, man. You got it. Okay. I am so sorry. <laughs> hey, you know, it's. It's hard to be a podcaster these days. Oh, man, I tell you, and usually I can handle it and, and whatnot and mute it out and whatever, but I was like, oh, man, that's going to be just crazy. So, plus my wife works from home, and I am I know she has, you know, she can get on meetings too. So, anyways, thank you for flexing. So, you were saying oh, yeah, no brewing your own coffee, riding your bike. Um, for the audience members, uh, can you explain a little bit about what is Quakerism? 
why Quaker? You know, why did why Quaker? Why did you become a Quaker? How did how did that? What was the yeah? What was the interest you know there for you and and whatnot? Yeah, you know, I didn't. As I mentioned, I didn't grow up Quaker, and that is a you know I think the way that most most Quakers, at least in the United States, still kind of find their way in. Um, hmm. But I I went I so I'm a first generation college student. Um, and I did, my mom and my stepdad both, um, dropped out of high school. So they didn't, hadn't gone to college and we didn't really, I mean, I think at some very basic level, if you don't have any connections to college, you don't necessarily know where to go to college. Like, you know, so, you know, kids in middle school and high school who come from educated families have lists of colleges they're interested in going to. I didn't have any idea. How do you pick a college? Where, where do you go? The one thing I had was I knew um, I had uh, felt a call to go into ministry when I was in um, in high school. Um, and as I mentioned, I was, you know, in a charismatic church. So that was a very, you know, kind of normal part of our experience in that, in that community. And so anyways, uh, I looked for schools that I could do Bible and theology. And it so happened that there was a college in Canton, Ohio, where I grew up and my family is still at, um, uh, called Malone and okay. Malone College at the time. And it was actually founded by Quakers. I didn't know any of this, um, but I went there and started uh, learning more about Bible and theology. And it's a pretty evangelical, capital E, evangelical school. Okay. I would say that it's not, uh, I mean, you know, we're talking 97 to 2002 uh, was when I was there. But it uh, was not, there, there wasn't anything Quaker about it anymore, really. I mean, you know, some names on some buildings, Um the name itself, Malone, was named after Walter Malone, who was a holiness Quaker of all things. Um, okay. Uh, and I had a couple professors who were either Quakers or were sort of Quaker adjacent. We call them friends of friends. Um, so, uh, okay. anyways, I'm coming out of a pretty conservative evangelical community. Uh, you know, very strict reading of the Bible, women, no women in leadership, you know, sort of experience, right? Um, Pretty, I would say, um, definitely not pacifist, you know, sort of the other, not even just, barely just war, if just war at all. I mean, this is sort of what I'm coming out of and going into college. And and so I start having uh, professors who are challenging all of these notions. And um, I had a, I had a professor who um, his what he was my, my hermeneutics professor, his wife was a clergy member. And so, you know, he has a bunch of us little evangelical kids and, you know, okay, listen, if you're going to pass this class, you are going to, you know, come out supporting women in ministry, basically, you know, okay. sort of, you know, out of how he opens class, you know, we're just like, Oh shit. Okay. You know, like where, where are we at? Um, but you know, over time, uh, when you start to learn that there's a whole world out there of interpretation and communities who have understood things differently and re- you know, I mean, it, it's like, Oh wow. 
you know, it's like the, the lights turn on or something. And that's what happened to me, um, around all sorts of theological concepts. And I mean, you know, I, one, one area was around nonviolence. Mm. Um, my community growing up, uh, or back home, uh, the church I was a part of, was uh, it was not uncommon for these folks to for for there to be people who were you know in leadership who um, you know I, I think if they had open carry laws back then they would have been open carrying you know what okay. I mean like all right kind of coming, coming from that perspective and yeah. is not the um, and I I felt uncomfortable with that but I didn't have language for it because that's I didn't have any way to articulate an alternative because that's what I was surrounded by. And that was the theology I was getting. Well, you know, when I get to college, I have, um, you know, a professor, a, a biblical studies professor who um, was a CEO, CEO during Vietnam. Okay. Right. You know, and so he lays out in class, you know, a comp- a completely different perspective of understanding Jesus and Jesus's teachings and, you know, not in this whole concept of nonviolence. And, and at that moment, as a 19 year old, I had never, I didn't even know there was such a concept as a person who was a Christian who understood Jesus in that way. I mean, there wasn't even a paradigm I was aware of. Um, Hmm. And so and then, you know, you add, so you add these sort of like theological shiftings happening. And then 2001, uh, September 11th, 2001 happens. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, kind of beginning to sort of um, wake up to um, alternative ways of understanding uh, Christian theology, the mm, world. Yeah. Um, and then to see how the country responds to that as a, let's go out and get them sort of, uh, perspective. And, um, that was really when in my heart, I realized like, I, I can't, I don't stand for this. Like there's some, I, I disagree with this idea that we need to, as a, as a country go after, um, you know, militarily go after this, this other regime and engage in that way. And, you know, and, and again, this was very, very different from what I was sort of coming into that, uh, coming into college with. Um, okay. So fast forward a little bit. I am looking for, I'm getting ready. I'm a junior. I'm going to graduate soon with a Bible and theology degree. You know, I, I think I want to be a pastor. Um, I'm not connected to any particular tradition, I have a, a professor pull me aside and say, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, I, you know, I think I'm going to be a pastor. And he said, well, what are you doing for work right now? And I was working at a restaurant called the Flaming Pit of all places. <laughs> um, there you go. Great pastoral training at the Flaming Pit. <laughs> there you go. I love it. <laughs> um, so he's like, maybe you should apply to work at a church and see what you think, you know? So I, uh, so I just apply to a few places, you know, the, back then they had a big binder up in the theology department of, uh, churches looking for youth pastors and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, so I, I get it. I call up, there's, you know, one place that kind of fit the bill. I call them up, you know, through a, a series of 
applications and interviews and that sort of thing, I get the job. It is Barberton Evangelical Friends Church. Okay. Um, and I, as, as I'm there, I basically say, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm going to be working in a French church, I should know something about the tradition. So I start reading and I, I'm reading the early history of Quakerism. Um, and this is a group, and I don't know how much you know about Quakers, Stan, but uh, early Quakers start in England, 1640s, 1650s, um, as a kind of a religious dissenting group. They, 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 they were Christians, mm-hmm. but they were um, against the institutional church. They were against Christendom. And uh, in fact, you know, in the language I use in, in my book here, the religion of empire, they were very much very outspokenly against the religion of empire, which is what they understood the Church of England and, uh, and the churches at that time to be about. Okay. okay. So, and, and they are, uh, so they have this kind of fairly radical uh, position, theological position, um, they are by, you know, within the be- very beginning of the movement, they have women preachers traveling around preaching. So they're very, um, egalitarian, you know, so it, as a part of what they were doing very early on, they make statements about, uh, being anti-war. So, you know, they try, the, the government tries to recruit one of the founders into the military and he's, you know, he basically kind of cites, different parts of scripture to say, no, we, this is, this is something we stand against. Um, and essentially I'm sort of reading all this and, and seeing these Christians who were very, um, radical in how they were positioning themselves. And I was like, that's, I want to be like that. I want, that's the kind of Christian community I want to be a part of. And, it's a, I had this sense of sort of being adopted in um, okay. or, or sort of like, oh, this is what I am, um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, just yeah. in the sense of like, oh, these my, my kind of where I've been heading theologically lines up with this historical community. Um, and, and so, you know, I continue to work in this evangelical church and what was really evangelical French church. And what was really one of the interesting things about it, just a little background was that it was not uncommon at this point, you know, so fast forward 350 years to hmm. Akron, Akron, Ohio. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm in this little evangelical French church and they celebrate the 4th of July and like, like a worship service celebrate. Okay. And you know, that's, that's fine. I know there's lots of churches that do that, but I've just gotten done reading all this history about like this kind of resistance to the religion of empire. I I wasn't using that language then, but, um, and I went to the pastor who, uh, you know, great respect for and love for, but I said, you know, Hey, this, this doesn't seem to really line up with what the Quaker tradition has been about, like what's going on here, you know? And so we got into a conversation about it and um, this question began to emerge for me, which was, I mean, you know, very, very simplistically, how did we get from there in 1650 Mm -hmm. to here in 2003? Yes. 
would early friends even recognize these communities? And what has happened over time? Uh, how has it evolved in such a way that this is where we are at, that uh, we look dramatically different and um, even our commitments don't seem to be the same. And then, I, and then what do we do about it? Because I am at that point, you know, a 20 year old, you know, I, I, I think I know a lot of stuff at that point. Yes, um, we all and, do. You know, yeah. You know, and I'm like, Hey, I, I don't know what's going on here, but like I read this old stuff and I want the old stuff. Like, I think it's still relevant. Um, you know, yeah, it needs to be reinterpreted and that sort of thing. But like these concepts still uh, draw me in. So like, surely there's others. So, I mean, that really is what set me on. Um, I, I think, you know, my, a lot of my work has been around trying to essentially trying to answer those questions. What has happened? How do we think about it? And are there ways to renew, retrieve, remix tradition and that we so that we can pull the best so that we don't have to constantly um give away our best stuff make compromises with culture you know i mean so so uh i mean so so we need to continue to adjust and evolve um and we need ways of thinking about how do we uh you know okay if we have um Egalitarianism in 1655 England looks a, a whole lot different than something of that nature in 2020. Our commitment to mm. equity needs to evolve, right? It can't just stay what we thought it was. Uh, you know, as a bunch of white folks in England in the 1650s, that has to change. Yeah. And one of the ways that it changed in some of our communities is we got rid of it. I mean, quite literally, I mean, if it's inconvenient, you, you kind of, you start to drift away from it. I got into a a conversation with uh, a leader in one of the yearly meetings, denominations of our community. This was shortly after September 11th. And this, 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 group was not, was really no longer interested in what Quakers call the testimony against war or the peace testimony, that sort of thing. Um, and they've kind of basically gotten away from it. And so I wanted to know why. Um, and he said, well, to be honest, you know, I, I think it's because we as a bunch of pacifists got embarrassed in World War II and felt like we didn't have a, a, a response and so we began to drift, you know, basically give up that part of our tradition. Hmm. I mean, that's a really, <laughs> okay. I mean, surely like we could have a better analysis than that. Like, um, but you know, so that's what I mean. Like, so, so one option is to like get rid of the thing because it is weird or it's challenging or it's uncomfortable. Another is to like, okay, we got to keep coming back to this thing and figuring out what does it have to do with us today? Um, you know, so anyways, I'm sort of starting to. No, no, no. I'm, I'm with that. I'm, I'm with that. Oh no, this is good. I mean, I, I love it. I love the breakdown because that gives a clearer picture. I mean, I know you had me out a few years ago at AAR, um, you yeah. know, to give a talk in regards, you know, this this remix and this idea of 
of what that looks like. Um, I think I like that concept. I like that idea. Um, especially now, right? I mean, and, and you know, because I ask a lot of my, my guests on here, as I'm sure you've heard, is like, you know, what what is what does that then now look like? And especially in light of this book, Revelation, you know, because most people have, I mean, a concept of revelation that is that is into the world. It's depressing. And I don't know if I want to get into that right now. And um, how does that in after the 2016 election, um, after this kind of major shift and, and really what I mean by that is like, because I think Trump enlightened and really exacerbated where we were already at and. Oh, I don't. Yes, he's a he, he's part of the major problem, but he's not the source of it. And so I'm, you know, trying to trying to ask folks and good, you know, great thinkers like yourself, like, man, you know, what what does that look like now? Because a lot of a lot of shit changed, you know, in the last Absolutely. five years, four years. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before I try to respond to that enormous question, <laughs> uh, I do want to say uh you know it really meant a lot to me for you to come and uh come to AAR and participate in that and um you know I, I know you've got uh lots of listeners who have mad respects for you I'm one of those people and you know oh, you man, were a few years you. ahead of me at, you were a few years ahead of me at Fuller and you really I mean I don't think you you realize this but when I when I met you and I learned about your work on Tupac and how you were applying, um, you know, I mean, in my mind, you were you were doing some amazing, interesting stuff with theology and missiology. It was like, wait, you can do that? Oh, okay. Like this, this is way more interesting now. Like, so I just like, I mean, I look up to you and I've got mad respect for you and your work and, and, and you have a, a you know, you have definitely have influence in terms of the direction of uh, some of this work in terms of, you know, that sort of thing. So I just want to, I'm going to drop that on you. Oh uh, man. Thank you. Say it while, while in, in public while I got you on the line. Um, but wow. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Um, so I, I started working on Revel on, on the book of revelation before the 16 election. Um, but I think, I think that one of the ways in which this is, I think it, I, I think that my book, uh, is, is relevant and is actually going to, in my opinion, will be, Come even more relevant over the at least the next year, and I think for more plenty more years to come. Um, and the the one of the ways in which uh, it overlaps with what is taking place is Revelation as a book in the Bible is saying there have been minority, marginalized, disenfranchised people being crushed by empire for thousands of years. Hmm. Here is how this community in Rome or you know these these smaller communities in Rome has has worked together has tried to resist the imperial regime of Rome. And we are still dealing with the same question. How do we as human beings live in the midst of empire 
And what does it mean? And then kind of funnel that down a little bit. What does it mean to be people of faith in the midst of empire? And what are the kinds of things that we could do, we could practice to resist empire um, rather than become like empire, which we know we got a long, devastating story of Christianity being the religion of empire. Um, so I think that it, it, in a very sort of simple way, Revelation isn't predicting, you know, I mean, and I, this is kind of one of the main punchlines of the book. Revelation isn't about predicting the end of the world. It is has no interest hmm. in predictions or uh prophesying the end times. That's not what Revelation is about. All right. This is good. This is good. Come on. Revelation is about revealing or unveiling empire in the the patterns of empire, how empire functions socially, economically, liturgically. Um, Hmm. And if we can get us, you know, I think if we can kind of, as a part of our analysis, was we looking at race and uh, gender and sexuality, you know, and all, I mean, and, uh, Bell Hooks talks about um, uh, imperialist, patriarchy, white supremacist, capitalism. I, I'll have those in the right, right order, right? But imperialism, patriarchy, White supremacist, white supremacy, and capitalism is kind of like her longhand way of talking about these interlocking um, oppressions, systems of oppression. And the Book of Revelation is essentially uh, an ancient way of looking at something very similar, um, because what it is suggesting is that. There is there is a way that empire works economically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, have, have you have you ever have you ever been in a Sunday school or a church where uh, Revelation was talked about as? Do you know that in this book it critiques an entire economic system? No. That is not how we tend to think about Revelation, right? Right. But the mark of the beast, what is the mark of the beast? It's not somebody's birthmark or a chip in their forehead or, or hand or whatever. It's It was uh, the denarii. And whose face was on the, the, denari, the denarii? Caesar, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Caesar was in the religion of Rome— Caesar was the son of God. Um, And in fact, if you read that passage, Revelation 13, what it says like six times in a row, it talks about people being made in the image of the beast. The image Hmm. of the beast is a counter to the image of God. And what it is—it's not—it's not saying people are made in the image of the beast. What it's saying is that the empire is trying to make remake people in the image of the beast. And one of the ways that the image of the beast is manifest, 
again, this is just the the image of the beast being uh, an, an ideology that shapes human identity. Um, one of the ways that it, it functions is through this mark of the beast. And the mark just means a marking on the coin, on the Daenerys, which is the face of Caesar. And what it says in that text is that everyone, that this system impacts the rich and the poor, Mm. the slave and the free. It impacts everyone. It devastates everyone or or consumes everyone. Um, So what it is saying is, I mean, it is quite literally saying those coins we use are a part of the religion of empire. It's trying to make us participate in and be shaped by that ideology, which is different from the image of God or the, in the book, I call it the religion of the lamb that was slain. Um, Another part uh, kind of following this line just for a second longer um, that is I, um, a biblical scholar named Crystal Hall, who I got to meet with through some of my work um, through a conference I got to take at Union Theological Seminary a number of years ago. Um, She pointed out they have a, they have the Cairo Center, which is a, uh, used to be called the Poverty Initiative, and they're basically doing um, strategic ways of uh, reading the Bible um, that help kind of amplify the anti-poverty framework of Scripture and, you know, kind of the liberation theology of Scripture. Okay. Um, anyway, so Crystal points this out, uh, and, and I picked up on it because, I mean, I think it's amazing and, and really powerful. In Revelation 18... Um, there is something called the cargo list. So Revelation 18 is basically the author saying, woe is Babylon. Who's Babylon? Babylon's the empire. Babylon is a Hebrew stand-in for whatever imperial regime is in power. So 18, uh, Revelation 18 is uh, saying, woe is Babylon, who is about to be destroyed because of the ways in which it has neglected the poor. I mean, you know, it's the same same sort of thing that the Hebrew prophets are banging their drums on constantly. Yeah. But yeah. in the middle of in the middle of 18, there is something called a cargo list. And this is a, a list of cargo that was on ships coming in and out of the ports. It shows what empire is trading in. And it starts with, you know, cinnamon, purple, incense, gold. And you know what it ends with? Ends with animals and human bodies. Hmm. Hmm. In in 90 AD or somewhere about that time, the early church is critiquing Roman economics because it trades in human bodies. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So if we're, you know, here's part of the challenge is we would rather read revelation being about 
the end times. Yes, absolutely. And and, and evacuation theology, as Rob Bell calls it, mm-hmm. because then we can make. I mean, let's let's just make it about that part right now. Uh, we can make this critique uh, of saying empire trades in slavery. It is based in slavery. The church resists that. This is not what we are about. So, so if we make this about evacuation theology, we can come up with all kinds of other things that that surely must, it, it must be about something else. It is not about an actual critique of economics that are based on slavery wow. and exploiting animals and exploiting the earth, right? I mean, so, so it is way more enticing uh, for us, I will include white Christianity, white Western Christianity into that us, because uh, you know we're the ones responsible for coming up with that sort of evacuation theology. Thank you, Schofield. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you, not thank you. Um, uh, right? You know, so so we can just bypass all these critiques if we make it about somewhere down the road. But that's not what this is about. Um, it's actually, you know, uh, something that's much more critical. And it's saying, look, you need to be paying attention and you need to, you, you, I mean, not just paying attention, you need to be resisting this and challenging it, not participating in it. Wow. Wow. This is, I mean, so, I mean, okay. So there's a, there's a lot here, man. And man, this is, this is what I like about your work and about what you're talking about here. Cause this is one of the first times I think that a lot of folks are hearing, including myself that, you know, we're looking at revelation in a different perspective than like you said, this evacuation, this end of the world this, you know, and, and I think it's easy anytime we, you know, and I, and part of it is, is like for me, and I've said this on the show before, but it's like, I don't, I don't believe the end of the world is nigh. Like, I think, you know, I, I, I believe in carbon dating. And so I think that, you know, we've got a few, you know, billion more years uh, of the earth. Now, humanity, <laughs> society, I, I don't I don't know about that. I don't know what's what's going to happen. Right. And, you know, we we have enough just in, in our capacity now just to to wipe out, you know, just at least humanity, the species like that. So. I'm not so much concerned per se about, you know, this end of the world. So I think what you're talking about, though, is much more indicative because it, it get this gets at the nerve center of neocapitalism. This gets at the nerve center of the the market value of of church celebrityism. This gets at the market yeah. value of what it means. You know, we were talking, you know, before, you know, joking about, you know, how much money we make off books. I, I don't, but I do know Christian authors who that's, they make, they make thousands if not millions of dollars off the book sales. Um, and I don't want to get necessarily get into, you know, one point critique this and this and that. But my point being is, is that this ongoing machine that is turned into church short-term missions yeah. uh, uh it, yeah. i don't want to have to look at that i don't want to have let's just, just say yeah. the, the world is about to end and you know we'll just all be better off once it does you know yeah absolutely no absolutely um you know i mean it's not really um so you know this as you um can guess isn't 
like this, this idea is not new with me. I mean, all that really happened was that I felt led slash challenged to um, preach a series of messages on revelation uh, kind of as a, like, what's the last thing on earth I would want to do? You know, I should try that. And then, you know, I thought, Oh, revelation. And that's, no, oh, that seems like a terrible idea. You know, everybody from my, my church is going to leave. Um, yeah. But I started, you know, I started asking, okay, surely there are people who have had liberation readings of this text. And, um, you know, sure enough, there are. Uh, uh, one one main person I drew from uh, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, who's a feminist biblical scholar, Um and I mean, but then there's there's plenty of others in there as well who who have done some really good work. And you know, it's not about the end of the world. All we're really doing is saying, how would the first readers have heard this? And the first yeah. readers were marginalized people living under occupation by Rome. Um, they were predominantly of Jewish heritage at that point, but there would have been others as well. Um, and Rome was occupying them. And that's why you get the apocalyptic lang- language, which was um, normal for people shaped by the Hebrew tradition, um, you know, to draw on that kind of imagery and language. Um you know, so we're we're just saying, how would they have read this and heard and understood what this text was about? It, John, is, or you know, or whoever's writing this, he isn't like pretending to write it to his churches while actually writing it to people two thousand years from now. Like nobody does that. That's not how pastors work. Uh, you know, like yeah. he's actually writing to the people he knows and cares about and doesn't want them to assimilate, compromise or be crushed by empire. You know, he, he is trying to give them some framework. He's writing from Patmos, which was which was like Rome's Alcatraz, or, you know, when I'm talking to my students, it's like Azkaban, you know, it's like this little island where prisoners of state were held. Um, and he's, he is quite literally smuggling out his letter to his churches. That sounds a lot like what King was doing uh, from a, a Birmingham prison, yeah. uh, writing a letter out, challenging uh, white complacency, challenging empire, challenging the religion of empire, uh, calling people to um, to resist and to not be um, to you know to not acquiesce in that way. So I mean, I think again, there's there's lots of ways we can kind of this is actually this isn't like a lot of gymnastics or something actually it's just sort of like well what would it have been like for these people um you know during that time people are uh, especially christian people were you know uh, uh, it's believed that domitian was the emperor at that time and he was you know he made nero look like a you know somebody who was good at like a, a great grandfather. I mean, you know, it was like <laughs> Domitian was horrible. I mean, I mean, and Nero was like burning people at the stake, you know I mean? So, so this is the kind of climate that these people are trying to exist in. And, um, uh, you know, I don't, 
I think part of what I have to do as a person, as a white person, uh, middle class, educated, um, I don't know what it's like for the for that community to live under that situation and to hear these words. Like I don't have access to that automatically. I need to look at and understand how disenfranchised and marginalized people today are in a similar place. And I need to hear from them and their experiences and learn from them to be able to try to get some sense of, you know, what this is about. And and then to try to be in solidarity with that sort of that that reading, that understanding and practice. So so this is all part of why I think it is um it is essential, but it is not necessarily attractive to everyone to um, to read it that way. It's much easier to, one, to make it about something else. It's also because when we do that, um, we also get to decide who is in and who is out. Absolutely. Who's going to get... Who's gonna, you know, go to the lake of, you know, fire, you know, of sulfur, and who's not? And guess what? It's always the people who I don't like, or I don't agree with, or don't look like me. Well, okay, that's, you know, that's really convenient theology, but it's not really helping anybody out either. Um, so I think that that I don't know. That's that's a little bit more about, um, you know, I think kind of why it's important to kind of dig back in and read it from the margins, so to speak, um, you know, as, uh, as, as others have done. Well, and I think that's, I mean, I think that that is crucial and that is key. I mean, you talk about this here. I mean, you got a a quote here on page 52, you know, you said, um, you know, as Eugene Peterson writes, you know, where you live, where you pray is essential to who God is and reveals himself to be. We have too often treated revelation, and you've talked about this, right, as a code that is to be broken or a secret formula to solve our problems. Uh, This matches that, this matches this, and voila, President so-and-so is the Antichrist, right? Uh, And then Mm -hmm. we should not be tricked into this way of reading any of the Bible. And I love this because this is is the truth, right, as it holds a secret or that it is detached from the people for whom it was written. Uh, Faith is not a math formula. I mean, I think that... You know, that sums it up right there. Faith is not a math formula because I hear that a lot. And again, having been in the in the in the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, that was a this was a huge part of the faith. Right. The, you know, the latter day mm-hmm. rain, the the you know, the third angel's message, this this, you know, this coming that God has entered his most holy place. And and those doors can close at any time. And Revelation has all the answers for that. And. The sea of glass, the 150,000 or 200,000 or whoever, right? And then you have other religions who will go and be audacious enough to to, to name who those people are. Business owners, people who had their own, you know, house, people who were married. And, of course, anyone in the LGBTQ community is, of course, always left out. But, you know, and and usually ethnic minorities and and whatnot. But I think that's just it. Faith is not a math formula. You said, as we read through the passages, let me encourage you to avoid the revelation as a code approach. Yeah. 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 This is, this is interesting. Cause I mean, I, I, it, okay. So, um, you know, one of the things I learned at Fuller, um, I think it was Marion, Marianne, my Thompson, who oh, said yeah. this. She, you know, do you have any classes with her? I think I had one because I know I have a couple books. So I, I believe I had one. 
a New Testament, yeah, something I New Testament. I, yeah, I think I did like the the letters or something with her. Anyways, yeah, yeah, she yeah, said yeah. Uh, she made a, a great comment that stuck with me. Um, and I, I write about this in the book. I mean, just that uh, the uh, idea uh, or revelation is like a political cartoon from the first century. Unless you understand the background and the, you know, the things it's referencing, the joke is lost on you. And yes, yeah. I mean, I didn't just wake up one day and understand all the symbols and political references of the first century. I mean, right. We have to, we have to work for that and that's okay. There's, that's not to anyone's fault, but we don't just arrive at the text understanding what it's about, especially apocalyptic literature. And, um, so it, you know, so it starts there. It is, it is in a way obscured, you know, for us, um, you know, we have to work to kind of get to the roots of it. I think the other part of it um, is it's it's not a code in the sense that it's some kind of secret that you know Pastor So and So has and nobody else has. Right. And that's the way that that's the way that the secret always plays out. Whatever uh, the absolutely. secret is. Yep. It always plays out in the in the in favor of the one in power, the one with privilege, over and against someone else. And uh, in fact, the things that we don't understand in Revelation, you know, the, the different symbols, the the seven this, seven that, those are all just references to either things that are in Hebrew scripture or in the Apocrypha. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite simply, uh, I mean, it, it, it actually, it's remix. It, there you go. He is using his entire tradition to communicate something to his people. And what he is saying is the entire tradition bears weight on this moment. It is, he is bringing that those that language those frameworks the i mean the the incessant challenge to empire that is throughout the hebrew scriptures into his texts as a way of saying this is what the tradition has been saying all along this is what we are to be watching for it's done in a different way, et cetera, but it's still, it, it, it's showing how it's still relevant essentially. Um, but, but we don't, again, we don't necessarily see that or know that right away. We have to do a little bit of work for that. And we have to constantly, you know, when I, when I do teaching around this, one of the things that we, we spend some time on is one going through what are our, what are our lenses? What are our identities that we bring to the text that, um, you know, we read into the text that may not be there. Um, the text also has lenses and identities that it is reading us with. And what are those? Um, you know, so we spend some time thinking about our different lenses. And then we spend some time, you know, and I'm, I am typically teaching this. I have typically been teaching this in predominantly white communities, although I've had opportunity to uh, do some teaching in some uh, African-American communities as well. Um, and thinking about, okay, what does it mean to read this text in these different communities? Um, you know, and I don't know what it's like to read it in a black church, but I do know that if I'm in a white church, I need to be really careful about making this text about me 
or thinking that I am the intended audience of this text because I'm not. Um, I am not the intended audience. It doesn't mean I can't learn something from it. It doesn't mean it can't help me, but I'm not the intended audience. Um, and I think once I can kind of get there, then I, we can begin to actually get at the root of some of what it's trying to teach us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know this, you know, probably even for somebody listening to this, you know, this talk now, I mean, I think it's, it, it can be a worldview changer, right? It's, it's, it's what I always tell students, right? It's like, don't get culture shock confused with the Holy Spirit, right? It's like, it's so easy to feel <laughs> yes, like, yes. oh my gosh, I feel a certain way and that must be God. Like, hold up, hold up. There are other natural processes that are happening inside you. Um, what did you eat for dinner last night? <laughs> right, right, exactly. What did you eat for dinner? What were you doing? What did you drink? Um, and I think, man, I mean, I think this is, this is, again, this is why I like this book so much because it reshifts the narrative remakes to use your, to use that language, use your language, man. It remixes how we understand revelation. And I like one of the quotes here, or even the, the, one of the endorsements, uh, I think it's Reverend Daryl Aaron, you know, he says, uh, yeah. you know, this centering of the victims and marginalized is something that is too often missed within Western white middle-class Christianity today makes my soul, uh, happy that Daniel's prophetic claim places black people at the heart of God. And I think that that, as I've read this text, I mean, that's, I mean, well, and I know I'm biased because I usually tend to read most things through a black and Mexican lens anyway, but yeah. it's like, that was how I interpreted it. I was like, okay, this is a remix of understanding this, this, this code that, um, that I have been brought up to, to see. And, and that's why I've really sworn off a lot of revelation books, um, that I've read because they usually, right. It's like gang documentaries. Like most do a horrible job at actually looking <laughs> at gangs and yeah. they just scare the shit out of people. And that's, that's the way I feel like most interpretations of revelation are right. They just do a horrible yeah. interpretation. They scare the shit out of people. And then, right. It's easy to say whatever president, right. It's easy for anybody to say Trump is the, I've even heard that from, you know, liberal Christians, like Trump is the antichrist. I'm like, hold up, hold up, hold the train. Like let's, you know, them, them cats were saying that about, you know, Obama, you know, he's a shapeshifter. Yeah. He's an alien. And just like, Oh gosh. But, you know, yeah, exactly. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. I was just, I, all I was going to say was I think that your book reframes how we need to look at particularly scripture with intended audience. But go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, as tempting as it is to call Trump the Antichrist, what that does is abdicate all of the responsibility of empire to an individual right. or to a, a select group of individuals. And I mean, the reality is, is that, you know, we are, I think, in the in the United States, we are, as a friend of mine said to me, we are all agents and victims of empire, you know, at different levels. And we participate and some of us benefit way more from that empire than others, without a doubt. And some are way more victimized than others. But there are there are ways in which we are all a part of this. And um how do we, you know, if we if we put, slap a label on one person or 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 a group of people, we we lose that broader analysis and find. Uh, yeah, and I think also just like lose that sense of, or perhaps we lose the sense of 
Um, what does it look like for, for me and for the communities that I'm a part of to continue to um, resist and not go along with the parts that we're, we're able to, we're able to resist in. Right. You know I mean? So, so I think that's why, yeah, that, that's why that's a problem as tempting as it is. Yes. <laughs> to, to do. Yes, 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 man. This, uh, for those of you listening again, the book is, Resisting Empire, the Book of Revelation. This is put out by Barclay Press. Um, y'all need to go in and get this copy uh, right now and read this. It's, it's and it's a quick read. I mean, that's and that's the other thing I like about it. And not that I like quick reads. I like getting into shit. But it's like this is rather than I mean, dude. I'm telling you, man. Like when I was going through confirmation and like 27 fundamental beliefs and you know all that stuff. Right when I was you know working as a pastor myself. I mean, the books on Revelation were just like, God damn, like six, eight hundred pages and, you know, and, yeah. and just and just kind of exhausting in the same things like, OK, you could have said that in 20 pages. Like, like yeah. we didn't have to do all that. <laughs> um, well, yeah, exactly. Go ahead. It doesn't need to be. I mean, I'm not you know, you're not going to get the explanation of every um, symbol or number, uh, because, you know, that, I don't think that's what this is really about. Um, and I, and I think that what we're trying to do is kind of draw out a framework from revelation that helps us to reveal empire. Um, so yeah, it is, it is short. It's a hundred, what, 130 pages or something. It's quick. It's meant to be, uh, you know, digestible for everyone. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's the goal. That's the hope. Uh, because I do think that, um, it's, I would like for this to be part of the lexicon for more, more of our communities, for more of our churches and yeah. to really be thinking seriously about what does it mean to dance with the religion of empire, you know, and, and how do we get out of that, those com constant compromises. One of the things that, um, I wanted to highlight before we finish, if you don't mind, was the, the concept of liturgy. I don't know if you got got into that part of the book, but you know, th there's so many scenes in Revelation where worship is happening, yeah. um, and I I think that part of what this is about is saying that there is a liturgy of the Lamb. There is a liturgy that shapes our moral imaginations. There's a liturgy of the empire that also shapes our moral imaginations. And uh, perhaps these two are in competition with each other, right? I mean, they are, not perhaps, they are in competition. Um, <clears throat> and so I've begun to wonder, and and and, and I write a, a little bit in here, and I, I've actually been thinking about this a lot since, since the book has come out. What does it look like to have a liturgy of resistance? Mm. Um, to have um, the songs we sing, the prayers we offer, the practices we participate in, um, really be about resisting empire. So um, in Revelation, one of the one of the ways this shows up is, um, you know, again this concept of the lamb that was slain. And what's really interesting is, uh, you know, this is of course. Um, an image of the scapegoat uh, from the Hebrew tradition. You would have a scapegoat. You'd put place the sins on it, and you'd send it out into the wilderness. You didn't kill it. You just kind of symbolically placed the sins of the people and sent it out. Revelation, what it's saying, I think, you know, this is sort of my interpretation, um, is that Jesus was the final scapegoat mm. and, and was the scapegoat of empire. 
And what um, was the victim of empire? Let me go a little bit further with it. And one, revealing that there is no need for scapegoats any longer. So one part of our liturgy, I, I think, I suggest, is that we, empire needs scapegoats. Yeah. Empire uses scapegoats to, to build its social boundaries. The church should never get caught up in creating, participating, or blaming scapegoats, victims. I mean, this is part of that. We know because we worship the lamb who was slain. How could we worship the lamb who we know was the scapegoat of empire, you know, the victim of empire to reveal the uselessness of that mode of social order how could we then get caught up in creating scapegoats? And so how does our liturgy uh, wake us up instead of, instead of, you know, there's plenty of, plenty of ways that churches and uh, can structure their, uh, structure their liturgy that are essentially kind of building us up into a frenzy over and against the bad people, whoever that is. Yeah. You, you know, insert the bad people of the week in there. That is that's the liturgy of empire. We mm. need liturgies that wake us up to the suffering of those in our communities. We need liturgies that help instead of extracting us away from the realities, actually draw us in, help us to pay attention, help build resilience for those things. Um, and the other piece of this, I, I think, is really um, interesting and easily missed is when in these scenes you have uh, the lamb and you have all these people, you know, or, or, or heavenly beings around and everyone singing Hosanna and all that sort of thing. There are, there are other people with the lamb in the center of that. And you know who those are? Mm. Those victims of empire, those whose robes have been washed in blood, who have been crushed by empire, who are victims of the ways in which empire functions. They are in the center with the lamb during these heavenly worship moments. What does it mean to have worship center the victims of empire for the church today? Well, what me, would it look like? Go ahead, go ahead. What would it look like to do that? Um, yeah, so yeah, that's, that's essentially what I, I kind of wanted to get out as a, as a, <laughs> at least a last thought to see what you think about that. And yeah. No, no, no. I mean, and I, and, but let me just ask this. I mean, cause I think you've raised some, some, some important points here. So let me ask this just as, 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 as a, as a curious inquisitor, um, so that how do you, do you interpret some of the scriptures about, you know, the specifics about the devil and the casting in the fire and the, and the burning yeah. and the ratty clothes and all that stuff like that? Like how, how do you, you know, yeah, yeah. Some of that stuff, particularly with somebody who's may still be like saying like, Oh, but this is still talking about end times. And it's talking about like, what's going to happen when we go to heaven, the sea of glass. Yeah. So um, two, two kind of quick responses. One is I, I work out of a framework that God is love. At the very foundation of who God is, God is love. So 
which is, is, is different from at the very root of God, God needs to be appeased or God is violent or God is angry. Right. I mean, and there is a there is an atonement theology that if you really dig down to the bottom of it, I think is saying God is kind of pissed off and angry and violent and is willing to cast you into hell forever because you lied to your grandma, you know, when you were six, unless you say you're sorry, Um, you know, unless you accept Jesus and that's and, you know, accept that. Okay, that's that is a way that Christian theology has operated. But there is another theology that at the root of it, God is love. And so if God doesn't need to be appeased, God isn't angry that I sinned. God is a God who is looking to bring peace and reconciliation and harmony and restore things back to what God originally intended. Okay, so I'm sort of suggesting these are two modes um, of theology. So I read Revelation out of that mode of love. In other words, if there's something in there that looks like God is, at the end of the day, violent and abusive, then I need to work on that text harder to understand what it's really about, because I know that God isn't violent and abusive. So so that's like the first catch. Like, So there's lots of things in here that I can't, you know, explain uh, in a moment, I sure. would need to go and do some work on it, right? Because it's like, okay, I know what it sounds like, so let's see. What what might be going on in this text that we don't understand? Because I know God that's not that's not what God is about. So there's so there's that kind of framework that I would kind of suggest to play with, to work on. Um you, you know, you can do this with I mean, in fact, I think this is a I, I'm I this is a, a hermeneutic that I borrowing, stealing from James Allison, who's a queer Catholic theologian. Um, And he writes about this in the book, Raising Abel, which I cannot recommend enough to folks. Um, And so so that's the concept there to work with. Um, So do do deeper digging into the text if it if it looks if at first glance, it could be kind of dismissed as this one thing, God being abusive. Okay, the second piece of this is that, again, there is a sense in which if we keep it in the kind of structures and the powers and principalities arena of things, God is actually bringing damnation down on superpowers. I remember uh, John Golden Gay did a talk at Fuller, uh, you know, when we were still there, uh, where basically it was something like God always brings down superpowers. Um, and I, I don't know if that was exactly the title of the paper, but yeah. is, it was essentially the idea that once a superpower gets to be big enough that it, it functions as God, then, you know, God has a problem with that. And so it's not, it's not about individuals. It's not about, you know, um, beating up, abusing individual people or being angry with individual, you know, that sort of thing. But there is a very real sense in which, the text is prophetic in that it is calling a judgment upon structures that are exploitative and oppressive of individuals. It is saying that God is going to bring that down. Um, and that is, that's consistent with the Hebrew prophets. That's consistent with apocalyptic literature. And again, I think if we 
we keep it in that kind of the the sphere of like you know what Walter Wink talks about the powers and the principalities, and we think about it in terms of structures. Yes, this is this is about uh, uh, oppressive systems and judge and God's judgment on them, not an individual or a community and that sort of thing. And so I think you know that it, uh, that's not necessarily how we think or work today, but that is that's consistent with kind of prophetic claims. You know what what Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah were were saying was like this this superpower is coming down because and it's always because you've oppressed the poor you've neglected the widow you've you know exploited that sort of thing it's not because you weren't pious enough you didn't go to church every day you know that sort of thing it's always because you uh, because of some a systemic issue around poverty or caring for the stranger and that sort of thing. Mm. I don't know if that helps. No, yeah, that, no, that, absolutely. That's how I think about it. No, that's that's good. I love that. I mean, because I think that that again, it's reshaping the narrative, is reshaping the the ideological structure that so much of it surrounds. And it's not just revelation, like you said. It's not, it it's it's the it's the broader scope of 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 the scriptures and, and again, intended audience, the cultural background, I mean, all those things that I think, right. That we're kind of caught up with now. I mean, I think that's part of the, the hijacking of, you know, American or U S Christianity. It's like, it's been so one-sided for so long. And like you said, this redemptive punitive God that sits up there and it's like, man, well, who wants, I mean, who could ever be perfect? Well, no one, no one's perfect. Well, then forget it. Right. I don't even want to, I don't want to have to deal with that. And so, you have presented yeah. us with a, a great insight here, man. So this is exciting, man. This is exciting. <laughs> Thanks, man. Well, I, yeah, again, just appreciate taking you taking the time and uh, getting to chat about this a little bit. I, I hope that folks will, um, you know, that whether they, whether they get the book or not, that they'll, uh, you know, think about these sorts of things as we head into really challenging times as a country. Um, and to, you know, I think, especially for the church to not get caught up in scapegoating, um, especially the most marginalized, uh, in our communities, you know, which is so easy, I think for people to do and to start blaming people, um, and kind of, working against uh, what Revelation calls uh, the multitude, that God is building the multitude. Yeah. And we sh- that's the work that we should all be a part of. Yes. Abso-freaking-lutely, man. This, I could keep going on, brother, but I definitely want to be conscious of time, and you have laid on us a thick theological um, restructuring, particularly for this book of Revelation. Again, Resisting Empire, Book of Revelation, C. West Daniels, Doctor C. West Daniels, that stuff is out there, man. Um, for, uh, and and it, where can folks get you, man? Where can they, you know, come find you and 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 get you to come out and maybe, you know, you can sell enough books, you can get that royalty check, man. You know, get that, you know, get that fat fifty k. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that's a. <laughs> well, we'll we'll set that that aside for the moment. Um, uh, you can find me, my website's gatheringinlight.com. 
uh, and I have a contact page there and there's links to the book and various, you know, other things. Um, and then I'm on Twitter, CW Daniels at CW Daniels. And I'm, you know, I'm fairly active there. Uh, try to keep track of what Dan's putting out anyway. So, you know, keep, <laughs> keep an eye on him. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, that's, you know, those are, those are two easy ways to find me and I'm happy to talk more with folks about it. And, um, yeah, uh, I'm doing a five week, uh, series at my Quaker meeting in town on this right now. So we're, we're working on some Sunday school material. So, you know, we got, we're, 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 we're working on it. This is great. And I, again, for those listening, as always, if this is your first time, I put this, these links in the show notes at whitehodgepodcast.com. And my question, just to, just to footnote it, just was, you know, kind of rooted in chapter eight when you talk about economics, poverty, and crashing the Beast's Party, Revelation 13 and 18. So, again, folks, if you don't have this book, the link is in the show notes. Maybe you listen to this on your way home. You know, when you get to the stoplight, go on, click, and buy this book. Check it out. Read it. And then get Wes out. Get him that fat honorarium and, uh, you know, hook hook, the, hook that brother up, man. For those of us out here doing some of this work, shoot, man. Um, Wes, thank you so much, brother, for taking thank the you. time out and, and, and for writing this book. Absolutely. Thank you, Dan. Blessings and thanks for, thanks for your uh, podcast. Keep up the good work. Yes, sir. Thank you.